Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. Hey, this is Alan Matudio. I'm an art activist from Chejage, colonially known as Montreal. And I'm Jazzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. I'm podcasting from Tijage of the Ganyagahaga Nation. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. On today's podcast, our topic is the graphic novel Kasama Deconstructed. But before we do that, we have a special guest on today's episode. We've got Alan here in studio. Welcome to our virtual studios. It's so great to have you here, Alan. Thank you for giving us your time on a Sunday night uh, to meet with us virtually. Listeners, we connected with Alan in season four. We did a taste test of Kasama on season four. After that episode aired, we invited Alan to come on season five so we could hear him about him, his journey and the creation of this graphic novel and We're just excited to have you here. Thank you so much. As Jesse and I have done in the past, can you briefly remind us where were you born, where you grew up, and where you locate yourself today? Yeah, so born and raised in Montreal, specifically in Côte de Neige, which is where you have the highest demographic of Filipinos. Right. Basically spent most of my life there until ultimately residing in the plateau, which is more of the artsy side of Montreal. And yeah, right now I'm a video game artist, but what I'm known for lately is for Kasama, which is a graphic novel that I wrote, as well as just other things that I've been writing here and there. And recently, very recently, some of the jewelry making. Jewelry making. We got to ask you about that. But before we ask you about that, (laughs) because I'm always interested in jewelry and I know Sigs is very interested in jewelry. But before we get that, something that we're always interested in is people's paths. Mm -hmm. And usually when we've talked to a lot of Filipino Canadians and Filipinex folks in the diaspora that have come on our show, they've usually shared their career path, hopefully to kind of inspire some of our listeners out there. How did you get onto this career path? of video game graphic designing, I think is what you said. Yeah, so my nine to five is working in video games as an illustrator. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Kasama and writing that book, I guess you could say that because of video game illustration, I got to writing the book. As a video game illustrator, you want your portfolio to be updated with just to show how good you are as an artist. It's basically Mm -hmm. your resume or your CV. What's hot right now, or what's always been hot, is shape languages that, for me, wasn't was too far away from my identity. For example, what's hot right now is stuff like Vikings or samurais or ninjas, yeah. and that right. didn't really... I couldn't relate to that. So mm-hmm. I went right. to look into my Filipino background. When I started diving into pre-colonial Filipino arts, I started connecting with the Filipino community of Montreal. And with that, I started volunteering in uh, grassroots organizations in Montreal. Mm -hmm. I like to think that I was working in community first, and then I went into creating art that shares our story as Filipinos in the diaspora. 
Ellen, it sounds like that there was a drive to see a reflection in what you were working in, I guess, or playing in or drawing in, if you can kind of think about it in those terms. Yeah, you could say that because the more I started reading into it, the more I realized that why aren't we talking about certain things? Why aren't we proud of how come I haven't seen this with other Filipinos? For example, I got really into... Again, Filipino jewelry, like mm-hmm. Filipino ancestral gold or Filipino tapestry or even Filipino martial arts. Like we have so much untapped art. It's sad that a lot of Filipinos aren't looking back at that. It's just going to disappear, really. And it's a shame because I guess there's life, right? I guess I'm just privileged enough to have the time to really dive into this. I wonder if it's more than just privilege. Like, I wonder if it's a desire and a motivation to kind of understand what our blood memories are prior to being influenced or impacted by 400 years of Spanish colonialization, (laughs) 500 years of missionary colonialism or imperialism, 75 years of American imperialism, like all of that stuff. Like, I wonder if somewhere in you, because I know that for me, and I know that for Siggy, when Siggy and I met in university, there was questions that he had that I had been, of course, always researching on and thinking like, who are we when we take out all of these other influences? I wonder if you had like a similar experience. Yeah, going back to the stuff that I was looking into, like, for example, Filipino traditional tattoos. I asked myself, Mm -hmm. what happened to that, right? I found out that, the Spanish stopped us from tattooing. Oh. And when we started tattooing, if we compared it to other Pacific Islanders, Mm -hmm. their tattoo culture really evolved and their designs got a lot more complex. But because of the Spanish, our tattoos, although still very much beautiful, still Mm -hmm. very simplified. It's still very dotty and still very liney. And once you got to know the impact of the colonizers on our arts, You start asking, what are we doing about it? And with that, you just start connecting with people who have the same mindset as well. Right. So then there was a search within you to kind of like find other like-minded folk or other people that were asking the same questions or other people with the same curiosity. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I was lucky to find that in Montreal. We're not a lot, but still, it's better to be going through this decolonization process with other people as opposed to by yourself because... It can be a really difficult journey to realize that, man, the systems are not necessarily in favor of people of color. So, Right. Last season, we talked to Filipinos of Montreal. We had a blast with them as they invited us down. And we made the trek to Montreal and shared a very similar story that you have been sharing where a small enough community found it necessary to connect and bind with each other, essentially, in some ways, as a way of being able to carve out community because sometimes being in the diaspora you are reminded how much you're not part of it and at the same time are pressured to be a part of it and yet you know we still stand apart and there's this idea of almost erasing our culture in some ways and I think that that's kind of what you're speaking to yeah exactly that so as you had said earlier Alan 
part of where you've been known for lately these days is the graphic novel Kasama. And I know that Siggy has a few questions for you. So I'll, I'll throw it over to Siggy in just a second mm-hmm. as he explores with you a little bit in terms of how did you get to this idea? And I think you're starting to allude to it that mm-hmm. some of it came out of curiosity and, and a need for reflection or wanting to see your own reflection. So instead of waiting, it sounded like I'm just going to do it myself. Basically, it was a huge process in that there was that part of me connecting with organizations here in Montreal, but there was also me traveling to the Philippines and experiencing this feeling of being out of place, even though I'm in the homeland, right? Like I figured I feel so out of place in Canada. Let's see how I feel in the homeland. And I still feel out of place in the homeland. And these experiences I really wanted to share, but I didn't know how I would share that. So I started actually sketching down the situations that I was in and in that moment, I didn't know that it would turn into Kasama, the graphic novel. It was just, I was just sketching out these situations that to me were kind of like, that weren't right, I guess, or that just stood out. For example, in Kasama, I write about when one of my characters enter this kind of tourist van and just yeah. learning about what the tourists were in Philippines for. Yes. Um, right. I experienced that. And oh. me being Filipino, I was like, oh, okay. I realize I'm a tourist as well, but am I there for the same reasons as them? Maybe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I realized right. that's kind of messed up. So I just take a lot of these situations and somehow I was able to turn that into a narrative. When did you go to the Philippines mm-hmm. where you yeah, were describing this experience? 2017, 2018. Yeah, right, right before the right, pandemic. Right, right. What prompted you to go in 2017? Was there a particular reason or was there this kind of need or was it because like family was like saying you ought to go? Well, was there a particular Uh, reason? Yeah, I guess it was in the middle of just me. At one point, I basically bought all the books on Amazon and (laughs) the the next thing I had to do was basically go go and check out the museums and check out what books were there. Like, I did spend a lot of time with family and checking out beaches and stuff, but a big bulk of the time too was at museums and at the national bookstores and just basically all bookstores and just buying stuff. Like my luggage was mad heavy because of these damn books. (laughs) You're saying this? I feel like you're you're like Jesse when he goes to the Philippines and you were in, was it 2019 too, Jess? 2019. His his suitcase was filled with books and he went to the museum and everything like that. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I essentially do is, especially if I go to a new country or a new place, it's like, I want to know how people think in that area. Totally. And so when I think a museum is a good way of being able to do that, but you're right. I mean, similarly, it's like there's only so many books you can get from a North American perspective yeah. about the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's actually been curated for you by somebody else that thinks yeah. this is what's important for you to know about the Philippines and about culture. And there gets to be a point where it's like, I just want to go to the University of the Philippines or the University of Santo Tomas and just go into the library, which I feel very comfortable. Like that's kind of my second and sometimes even third home is going to a university library. Nice. And that's exactly what I do. I just buy books after books. And my dad is just like, Anak, do you need any more books? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Like, because none of this is digitized, right? And if I have to send it in a Balik buy-in box, I will send it in a Balik buy-in box home and stuff like that. Similarly, I think that when any of us from the diaspora 
comes back to the Philippines. We're not seen as Filipino. You might be seen as an OFW or a balakbayan or a turista, right, as you were talking about before. They know you as a Filipino in the diaspora, but they don't necessarily have a name for you. And somehow you feel part of it, but not part of it. And things feel familiar, but not really familiar. And it's having to kind of realize that, oh, Filipinos back in the Philippines means something different than being a Filipino in the diaspora. And Siggy and I talk about this all the time, that Filipinos in the diaspora aren't monolithic, meaning that there's only one type. There's many different expressions of us. As we had realized, as Siggy and I jaunted all the way to Montreal and the Filipinos of Montreal, where they rightly schooled us and said, oh, you think it's hard being a Filipino in Canada? Try being made fun of in two languages in some ways. And it's like, oh, my brain just exploding at, at that point. I really relate to this idea of just even kind of coming back home or coming back to the Philippines thinking, oh, I'm going to feel connected and yet at the same time, not so connected and trying to figure that out. And it sounds like you dealt with it by drawing about it, which then kind of birthed Kasama in a lot of ways. Yeah, I drew it because to me it was difficult, but I'm realizing that it is what it is and it's okay yeah, it's just yeah. part of being Filipino to have these different backgrounds and stories. And it's important to know these stories too, right? We're not a monolith. Some of us have migration channels. Some of us are still at home. And even in terms of how we migrated and how we were raised could be super different depending on the province or the country. So right. it's important to talk about and share. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's why Singing and I created this podcast because we just thought, oh, it's an important platform to put out there, but it's also important to kind of share different immigration stories and pathways from the Philippines to different parts of the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Now, before we kind of delve even more deeper <laughs> into all of this, could you maybe give us a synopsis of what Kasama is all about for our listeners that haven't actually had the opportunity to order their copy of Kasama? Sure, yeah. Kasama is the story of two travelers, Allison and Kia. They're both navigating their cultural differences as they hunt down the Mananangal, which is this folklore creature of the Philippines. Mm. It's funny because... People sometimes get surprised when I tell them that, oh, they're navigating their cultural differences, but they're both Filipino. So mm. I want to highlight that there are different experiences and different just Filipinos uh, right. in that book. And yeah, like for those who don't know, Kasama means togetherness, companionship and allyship. Because of my background in community work, it was important that I use Kasama because it just, I don't know, it just felt so perfect especially because it kind of pays tribute to all the allies that are trying to make a change in the diaspora and also helped me write this book. I love that idea, and we had just touched on it, where, again, we're not a monolithic institution or we're not monolithic. Even just in today's panel, SIGS is originally from St. Catharines, and that experience there is very different than for me growing up in Toronto or for you growing up in Montreal and different times of when we were growing up. And I do sometimes find that people think that there's one way of being Filipino in the diaspora. And then when you run into other Filipinos that haven't had that experience, it's kind of like, what? 
that? <laughs> right? Like, you know, are you, and then invariably the odd question kind of comes up of, or implication of, you might not be Filipino enough. Yeah. H- how do we see these two characters kind of navigate their differences? It's tricky, but ultimately, I don't know. I feel like I'd be spoiling it. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Well, because it's just one character is based on someone who is doing their best and trying mm-hmm. to connect, trying to be rooted. And then you have another person who's a lot more rooted. They know what they want. They know what they need to do. And it's right. that dynamic that we also see among Filipinos in the diaspora, right? So there's people in different parts of their reconnecting with their heritage. And I kind of wanted to portray that in the book as well. The dynamic that you've just described sometimes feels like you're describing Siggy and myself (laughs) in terms of... (laughs) Who's who? Who totally is. I'm Allison, come on. But um, (laughs) but I, I have to tell you, Alan, and I just... It's in your first three pages. I could close my eyes. And for some reason, when I picture like a busy street with the ihao ihao and stuff my my parents describe it and these are from like the photos they had taken which were in black and white you captured that like if i close my eyes when my parents tell me these stories of the philippines like literally and i remember telling jesse i go i would open the first few pages it felt familiar and i haven't even been to the philippines which is so interesting right you captured that and you took me there because you almost relate this is a story how my parents tell me what it's like in the philippines and from their point of view and i didn't know how I didn't even know what to expect when I bought the book. And I was like, how did he do that within like one, two, three, four, five, like barely like 12 frames where he just transported me from the yeah. stories that Jesse tells about going to the Philippines. My mom and my dad's from Manila. My mom's from Randuki, but you captured it. And like, for me, like we're totally not, you know, we're not a monolith, but I found it so great that I was engaged. You took something that, I learned about and you made it so real. Like if I close my eyes, even like the hue and the color, that's how I I envision it because I see it through my pictures from my parents and you just did it so dynamically. That's why I think I was very intrigued and I told Jesse, I go, hope we have a chance just to hear from you. And you clearly like doing research and traveling and trying to like capture people of the diaspora, trying to find that journey of culture and balance. You're literally and figuratively illustrating it. And for me, like a 45-year-old guy just opening this up, learning more about my culture, I was just so intrigued and drawn in, like, immediately. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the first things, well, maybe not one of the first things, but, like, just when it comes to comic book making, it's really important to set the environment. And I learned that I had to find a way to make people smell, to make people hear, to make people feel mm. the temperature mm. through illustrations. And I do that by showing images that you might have not have ever experienced Philippines, but because that image conveys a sound that's familiar to you, you're going to hear it. So for example, I put a picture of a blender, you know what a blender sounds like, (laughs) but by putting that picture of a blender, it already sets that sound in that environment. I put the color a certain way because it suggests heat. And I put a motorcycle there because that suggests you know, the sound of a motor. So adding all these different pictures of objects that create sound, you realize that, and you add them all together, it creates an environment that is a lot more 
tangible, even if you're just looking at it. Yeah. Apart from just basic comic book making or creating a set, it's also me trying to really share an environment that's important to me. So that first environment was inspired by Kiapo Market, which is where my dad grew up and I wanted to mm-hmm. give it justice. So as much as possible, like I spent a lot of time just figuring out what that might sound like or how that would feel like the clutterness and the noise everywhere. Right. I wanted to make where my dad grew up. Like I just wanted to give it justice because it's important to my dad and my dad is mm-hmm. important to me. And again, the neighborhoods were Jay and Lola live. That's the neighborhood that my dad grew up in. Like I basically copied the street that he grew up in because to me that wasn't important, right? So because those environments are really important to me, I put that much more attention to detail to the backgrounds. And I can bring that also to the characters because every single character is also inspired by people that I know in real life. So that's why my characters... I have this level of dimension because they are inspired by family member stories and or even just migration stories that I've heard from the community work. I was going to say that the way you talk about it, especially with like trying to do justice for your dad, for example, or other people that may have inspired Kasama, it sounds like that this was not only just a need to kind of put out a reflection for yourself, but also a tribute. To the people around you. Totally. Yeah. That's fair to say. Yeah. Like, for example, the two main characters, Allison and Kia. Allison is my niece on my dad's side. Yeah. Well, you know, second cousin. I don't know how you know. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> you would break that down. We're still family, family right? right? But that's on yeah. my dad's side. And on my mom's side is Kia, which is the eldest, mm-hmm. my eldest niece on yeah. my mom's side. So, and like both of these characters are kind of based on some of the people I've organized with in Montreal. Allison has a balisong knife because balisongs apparently have a huge kind of, like they're known in Batangas and my mom is from Batangas. So I wanted Ah. a part of my mom to be in the graphic novel as well. And, you know, just the different food that were mentioned in the graphic novel. It's all stuff that, they're all my personal favorites, right? Yeah, as much as possible. I'm just dumping everything I love or everything that I've learned to love into Kasama. So it's also a love letter. It's definitely a love letter. Yeah. Certainly sounds like that's how you came up with the ideas for Kasama is not only just the need for reflection and putting that out there and wanting to, if you will, know more about our culture, but also kind of a tribute and a love letter to the people within your life. That's really wonderful, actually. Thanks. Yeah. Do my best. (laughs) I have to say, like, if you look at all the dissertations I've ever written, like, they're tributes to my family, right? Like, on the acknowledgement page, it always says that none of this would have been possible if I didn't have the support and love of my family and stuff like that. And that just kind of speaks to, you know, a focus in our culture about being family-oriented. I certainly appreciate hearing how people do love letters and tributes within the work that they do, right? So. Yeah, actually, if you look at like my shout out list at the end of the book, it's like a huge paragraph and like every single person that helped me or influenced me or I'm inspired by is in that paragraph because like legit without them, I wouldn't have been able to create Kasama either on the technical side or in the like motivation side. Like, for example, I 
Andy, who is also an artist from Montreal, they were one of the first people I showed my work to. And when they seemed excited about the work, that gave me the confidence to show it to other people, mm. right? Oh, to nice. have right. validation from an artist that I respect so highly <clears throat> gives me the encouragement to move forward. Wow. So, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a village that, you know, was able to create Kasama. It's, you know, it's my Kasama that Of course it is. It, of course it is. Now, you touched on how this kind of came about, and we've already been kind of alluding to some of the themes. And one of them is that navigating a cultural divide amongst Filipinos in the diaspora, the Filipino diaspora itself, that we're not monolithic. But I know that when Siggy did the taste test last season in terms of Kasama, he had noted a number of different themes. Why was it important for you to touch on certain themes? That's, I guess, a question that we have for you. Because... I come from community work. What was most important to me was to be able to convey a message, mm -hmm. especially when you work. And I go to protests and I go to rallies and we try to advocate for better work conditions for a lot of our kababayans. And mm -hmm. oftentimes it's ignored in that format of communication. And right. as someone who is from community, I wanted to be able to share the same message, but in a way that was maybe more accessible. Hence, Kasama, the graphic novel. I think that in our warm-up, right, which is going to be published after this main episode drops, we talk a little bit about kind of the idea that graphic novels and comic books are a medium mm -hmm. and that they can convey many many different types of messages and stuff like that. It sounds like what's important to you is this idea of social justice. You've mentioned this a couple of times, the community work, standing in solidarity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I guess oftentimes as Filipinos in the diaspora, we get distracted by a lot of the maybe Filipino celebrities or just people like Manny Pacquiao, which, you know, in its own right is pretty amazing. Ultimately, we don't get to talk about some of the struggles that we have as Filipinos in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we come here through vulnerable conditions for the most part. Our families are separated in search for a safer life. Oftentimes, the mom comes here to do care work and that mm -hmm. creates a divide in the family. And even though you're able to bring the family over, it might have created some conflict within that family. And that can lead to like transnational, intergenerational trauma. Right. And oftentimes, and this is the result of colonization by just a history of colonization, really. Like we're so influenced mm -hmm. by our white peers and, you know, it's hard for us to just admit that. So, yeah, these are things that I think we should be talking about more and if only we had that same energy, like that same Manic Pacquiao fight energy into actual problems that we have, then we might, we might be better as a community, really. You know, my mom and I talk about this quite often. We talk about the fact that there seems to have, we seem to have lost our edge in terms of being revolutionaries and rebels. And we come from a history of revolutionaries and rebels from Jose Rizal or Bonifacio, right? Like all these folks from the early 1900s. And then if you think about then the People's Revolution come the 80s, 
you know, we seem to have kind of lost all of that. I'm curious to know why you think we've lost all of that. Is it because of what you've been describing that we've been so glamoured and are trying to play this Western colonial game? Or is it something else that has made us forget the importance of speaking up and speaking to the injustice that occurs within our community? Because in as much as we're all about harmony, right, we also have a history of also speaking the truth out there too. I think that revolutionary spirit does still exist. It might not be as loud, but it does still exist. And the youth are evidence of that. That said, the truth is life for Filipino migrants is very difficult. As much as we would want to protest, we might not have time to protest because maybe we're working two jobs. Maybe we live with our employer and we can't go out, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe when we do have time, we would rather spend that time with our family because we're just so busy with other things. So fact is, we're just trying to survive and that's fine. So that revolutionary spirit, it exists. But there's also just a lot of things happening right now. Yeah, like I get the idea that even colonialism, Western imperialism, neoliberal ideas have actually stopped us from making more headway because it's consumed us with being busy with life. Mm -hmm. So much so that affording life that it's hard to then protest. Mm -hmm. I just think about the generation that entered into the diaspora in the 1960s who are all now technically retired. Mm -hmm. They're all very busy at their prayer group meetings. And I know because I see them (laughs) and they say, Anak, and I'm like, hi, Tita, right? Mm And yet, I think to myself, they have lots of time to protest. Sure. And in any event, this is what my mom and I talk about. And we think, well, how do those that do have the time, why aren't they protesting enough? Now, I know that sometimes when I do talk to them, right, my titas and titos out there in the GTA community, sometimes it is a bit busy because it's like, oh, we're helping our own kids kind of navigate all of the oppression that they face and the lack of opportunity and privilege that they have. Yeah. I guess I just wonder about kind of like, oh, are we so lulled into it because of all of the fact that capitalism has has kept us busy hustling to stay alive? I think apart from a difference of politics, right, it could just be a difference of politics, but it could also just be trauma, what they experienced in the homeland and how they don't want to see that happen in the country that they chose to settle in. My parents, well, my dad specifically, who was really heavy into protesting in the Philippines mm-hmm. is really protective of me protesting here in Canada because he's experienced it in the Philippines. So I can right. understand that <laughs> because of your experience in the homeland, you've moved away from that and you just want to live kind of a more... To certain generations, it's a relativity thing, right? It's really interesting, Alan, is in 1986, I was in the Philippines during the People's Revolution. I was originally there visiting and then eventually attending the funeral of my grandfather on my father's side. But in the midst of all of that, the People's Revolution was starting. And in fact, we almost had a hard time getting out of the Philippines coming back to Canada because they didn't believe that we were Canadian citizens when we were trying to leave at that point. Mm -hmm. In any event, 
What was fascinating about that in the lead up to that, to the people's revolution was actually me witnessing kind of, if you will, that revolutionary spirit. Mm -hmm. And it was quite incredible. It was quite incredible. And I was thinking to myself, I've never seen Filipinos speak their mind and speak their truth and stuff like that. I've always believed that a lot of this has remained dormant. And I agree with you that probably there is some trauma there. But I also think to myself, too, that there's thinking now that it's about resilience and post-traumatic growth in a lot of ways. And so growth is possible from trauma. And sometimes the way that that occurs is actually by speaking one's truth. And I'm always thinking about how do we motivate people to speak the truth? I know that it's difficult to speak the truth, especially to power. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I do that in my regular job, (laughs) speaking truth to power all the time and telling people how they fail. That's part of my job is me telling people how they fail and that I'm speaking our truth to power. I guess I just wonder about kind of like, oh, how do we build more resilience in our people, Filipinos in the diaspora? I don't expect you to have an answer. Like this is a constant meditation that I have, thinking to myself, how do we activate the community, mobilize the community, especially speaking to another community activist? Actually, yeah, you know what? I think for the most part, it's because we at least for Filipinos in the diaspora, we're so disconnected to our history. Mm-hmm. I don't even, I, I don't think the av- for example, my sister definitely has no interest in Filipino revolution. And I'm sure right. a huge majority of Filipino in the diaspora, at least second generation, right, have other things right. to worry about or think about. So if you don't have that knowledge of our history, what are the chances that you have knowledge of our revolutionary spirit? So right. there needs to be that connection. There needs to be that internal research, first and foremost, to eventually lead you into our history and eventually potentially get you that revolutionary spirit. It's interesting that you say that because I know years ago, actually decades, if I'm really truthful, <laughs> right? Decades ago, I really wanted to have done a master's in Filipino studies because, and the reality is, is that good luck trying to find a Filipino studies diploma program or degree program or undergraduate program east of the Mississippi. Like you would not find it, right? And if you were really looking for some of the best ones, they're not actually available like until you get to Hawaii. (laughs) And which kind of makes sense. But at the same time, it's kind of like, it's actually hard to find anything on Filipino studies. And like what you and I had just been sharing about earlier, there's only so much books you can buy off Amazon's or search the library system for this kind of stuff, which is why every time I'm back, and before the pandemic, I used to be back almost every two years to the Philippines. I'd be searching for all of these books or finding out what is the syllabus at this particular university in terms of what they're reading. And can I bug people at the university bookstore for those books? (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be there buying those books. But it does make me think I wish we did have Filipino studies because especially if we look to our indigenous community here in Canada, they talk about indigenizing the curriculum and indigenizing Canadian society. They talk about needing indigenous studies at all universities and colleges and stuff like that, yeah. right? So you make a really interesting point that it's kind of like our disconnection to the history keeps reinforcing this kind of colonial blur. <laughs> to be honest, like I've had this conversation with a lot of Filipino academics here in Montreal. There <laughs> needs to be... Canadian migration studies. Migrants have contributed to a big part of Canada's development. And we mostly talk about 
Canadian history as colonizers and not representing the different people that contributed the growth that is Canada. So we can talk about about the the Jamaican at a younger age. Of course, you're going to see this in the university level, but like it would be interesting for people of color of youth to understand why they're in Canada in the first place, right? To know their history in the first Mm -hmm. place. Part of how Siggy and I became friends was because he was like, Guya, why are these differences amongst Filipinos? Like, why do these particular differences exist? And and it was because of my own kind of like study and hunt for some of this knowledge. I was going to say, Alan, here, at least in the greater Toronto area, there are knowledge hubs that look at kind of what you've described it as Canadian studies, or they talk about it more as immigration and settlement studies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then it's always fascinating. It's like, if you look at the Caribbean community, Mm -hmm. there are a couple generations ahead of where Filipinos are, right? Mm -hmm. And that their experience is very much, if you will, relate to because they've gone through a similar path pattern of healthcare workers, you know, first kind of coming in and domestic workers later and stuff like that. I do agree with you that I think to myself, it is a shame that we don't have more of that. And I always think to myself, oh, there has to be in the age of the pandemic, a chance to maybe do some type of digital studies with respect to Filipinos in the diaspora. Mm. So any scholars and academics out there listening to this podcast, (laughs) and I hope you are, right? I hope you certainly get inspired to do and propose a disciplinary minor at your university senates or college senates. Put it in high school. Put it in high school. You know, like migration history is Canadian history. (laughs) But Alan, do you know where it starts first? It starts at the post-secondary institutional level, right? Because then what that does is it challenges the secondary school system to catch up, right? So so I think that that's the way to go. Like you start off with post-secondary and then it challenges secondary schools to eventually be able to teach those in the curriculum and then they they kind of foster down and stuff like that. And not kind of like these Tagalog language skills that you would take on a Saturday. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. It's, my goodness, like Sigs, we really need to have Alan. I want you to come, come back, back, Alan. Sure, I just love, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here like Let's do it next week. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing next week? Alan coming in and talk to us. It's just such thoughtful discussions on top of like Kasama deconstructed we're hearing so much more and we appreciate like this type of dialogue happening and I I love it because I know Jess has his like thinking pose on and just the nods right there soon we'll have to start videotaping and just releasing the video of us just like in these ponderances yeah 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 and do a video podcast and stuff like that Alan this pose of like my two fingers like my index and my thumb to my mouth really means I'm trying to figure out where we're going to thread you in next in our 19 (laughs) episodes this season and stuff like that you will probably get an email sometime soon about hey what about this idea I'm pitching that there's a lot to talk about honestly like oh yeah because when it comes to filipino comics that's its own subject when it comes to filipino comics in the diaspora that's a whole nother thing mm. too because like just the different themes that filipino creators touch up on is super interesting right right right. because of where you are it's a different story too and how they portray that it's also super interesting so well yeah, know, and, a and those influences yeah totally yeah it is. Just to tie in, because I had a question out for you. What I found interesting about the novel, like, it just pulls you in. And I said that earlier, and we mentioned on the podcast, Jesse has been to the Philippines. I have not. But, like, in the first few pages, you bring the reader a firsthand Filipino experience. How did you manage to tell a story that speaks to a wide range of Filipinos and diaspora, like, from that experience and research? How were you able to do that? To be honest, the audience was something I was thinking about secondary, 
because mm-hmm. ultimately what I wanted to write about was my experiences. And because I made an effort to make it as genuine as possible, that in itself might have spoken to the audience. So to me, like, that's what's really tricky about Kasama. Early on, I wasn't sure who to market the book for because mm-hmm. I was just expressing myself through yeah. a format that I was comfortable with. It wasn't until I was speaking with Anak Publishing that we started figuring out how we're going to market the who we're going to market the book for. <clears throat> but yeah, ultimately, it's really about me being as genuine as possible with the people, the environments, and the message that I want to share. If somehow that resonated with you, then ultimately I was able to succeed in how I communicated. I think you were quite successful. Siggy couldn't stop raving about it once he got a copy and had gone through it a couple of times, I might add, too. (laughs) The other thing that I would add, too, is is, is that sometimes when we tell our stories, sometimes even the most specific stories have the most universal commonalities out there, right? Mm -hmm. If you were kind of pouring in your passion, even if it was so specific to you, there's truth to that experience and universalities are bound to emerge, commonalities are, are bound to emerge and kind of come up. Mm-hmm. I think that takes us to the end of our episode. And I think the real fixing of the week, because we usually like to end with a fixing on our full episode, but this fixing of the week really needs to be about go get your copy of this amazing graphic novel, Kasama by Alan Matudio. So we will make sure that we have that in our socials as well as on our episode notes as well. But with that said, I think, Sigs, you should take us out and ask Alan to share his socials with us. Alan, you need to share your socials because we didn't even tip the iceberg on your jewelry making and 90-day fiancé. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's why we got to bring you back, back in. Because I've seen your work. <laughs> Please share to the Hello podcast listeners. You're doing some amazing stuff. Yeah, it's I'm trying fantastic. to bring it back. I'm trying to bring it back. I'm trying to make yeah. it modern, make it yeah. wearable, make us proud of this art form that disappeared, that was taken from us. Yes, That's ultimately yeah, yeah, yeah. the story behind it. So share, yeah, share, oh, share yeah, sorry. So yeah, it's, you guys can follow me on Instagram at Alan Matudio. You can also check out my website, www.alanmatudio.com. You can find Hello Hello Pop Culture on Twitter. We're at Hello Hello Pop. And we're on Instagram at Hello Hello Pop Culture. Also, you can email us at Hello Hello Pop Culture at gmail.com. Tell us if you enjoyed your copy of Kasama. And obviously, Alan, open invitation for you to come back again. Yes. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chelts Ringen. We'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you soon, guys. Thank you.